We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Intelligence Square podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Over the last year, AI has been advancing at unprecedented speed. Tools like ChatGPT are taking the drudgery out of many of our everyday activities and creating exciting possibilities. But alarm bells are ringing. As we become increasingly unable to differentiate between the real and the virtual, what risks lie ahead? Are we on the verge of a future where machines awaken and pose a threat to humanity? In this episode of the podcast, we partner with the Swedish publishing house and ideas forum, Free Tanker, to explore the philosophical and political implications of AI, virtual reality, and the mystery of consciousness. Part two of this event is available ad-free for subscribers now. And for our listeners who don't subscribe, part two will be available in our next episode. This event took place in May 2023 in Stockholm. Good evening. It's wonderful to see so many here, so many familiar faces. I saw that outside right now. I can't see you at all, but that's fine. I know you are there. Or do I? Depends on if you are simulated. I don't know, but it doesn't matter according to our keynote speaker. You're still real. Anyway, my name is Christus Sturmark. I am the CEO of the publishing house Fri Tanke. Very welcome to dynamic exploration into the intersection of virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and the philosophy of mind. This is a combination of topics that right now are redefining our understanding of what reality is, our understanding of cognition, and our understanding of the essence of human consciousness itself. We stand on the edge of a world where technology and philosophy converge, giving rise to questions, debates, deep worries and insights that once seemed to be the sole domain of science fiction. How do virtual reality technologies reshape our perception of what's real? And how does artificial intelligence challenge our concept of self-awareness and sentience. 
And how does the philosophical investigation of consciousness interact with these new advancements? So welcome to an evening of exploration of the real and the virtual, the human and the artificial, the conscious and the synthesized. At the first part, after the keynote speech, we will have a panel discussion focusing on virtual reality and AI as a social, political and ethical issue, so to speak. And after the break, the panel will focus on AI and the philosophy of mind. Will superintelligent AI someday become self-aware? That's a big question and we can read a lot about it in the news all the time. But before these two panel discussions, I'd like to introduce to you our international guest and keynote speaker of tonight. He is Professor of Philosophy and Neural Science, co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness. <clears throat> he is known to have formulated the hard problem of consciousness, the problem of how and why we have qualia, or subjective, the, uh, subjective phenomenal experience like the experience that come with perception, like the redness of a rose or the smell of fresh coffee or the feeling of love. And that is compared to the easy problem, in quotation marks of course, which is how the brain actually processes stimuli and makes decisions and produce behaviors and so on. That is considered the easy problem. Anyway, his new book is called in English Reality Plus, in Swedish Virtuella Värdar, <clears throat> and it explores the philosophical consequences of virtual reality and augmented reality. And the central thesis in the book is that virtual reality is genuine reality, and what that means to us. So, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Professor David Chalmers. Thank you so much, Krista, and thanks to, to all of you for coming out tonight. It's such a great pleasure to be here at this event, in effect, marking the launch of this book in Swedish translation. When the book came out in English in January last year, the world was in the middle of the Omicron crisis. The book launch at that time turned out to be virtual. Now I, as you'll see, am actually a fan of the virtual. I think the virtual can, can be wonderful in many respects. But there is still something special about an event here in person. So I'm glad that we get to launch this, this Swedish translation of the book here collectively together, embodied in person. The theme of this book, or the genre of this book, is something I like to call techno-philosophy. It's not a mashup of music and dance and philosophy. Rather, it's a, it's a two-way interaction between philosophy and technology. I'm myself a philosopher by training. I started as a mathematician and a computer scientist. These days, I think about philosophy. But as a philosopher, you can think of many topics It's one of the wonderful things about the profession. If I'm interested in 
I don't know, baseball, I can work on the philosophy of baseball. If I'm interested in herring, I can work on the philosophy of herring. I don't know if anyone has founded this field yet. But if I'm interested in technology, I can think philosophically about technology. And that is one half of techno-philosophy. Thinking philosophically about technologies like artificial intelligence and virtual reality. The other half of techno-philosophy is using these technologies as a lens to focus on many of the great traditional problems of philosophy. So for example, I think that thinking about artificial intelligence can actually tell us many things, can shed light on philosophical problems about the nature of the mind and the nature of consciousness. Thinking about virtual reality can shed light on many very traditional questions about reality itself. What is the nature of reality? How can we know anything about it? So this book is really an attempt to address many philosophical problems through the lens of technology, especially through the lens of virtual worlds, as the title of the book in Swedish suggests, but also through the lens of artificial intelligence and other technologies. I mean, in many ways, philosophy, as I see it, is all about the interaction between the mind and the world. There are philosophical problems about the mind. There are ph philosophical problems about reality, about the world, and philosophical problems about their interaction. What does technology have to bring to those? We start, I guess, with the natural mind and the natural world. What technology does is gives us a new case, potentially, of the mind and a new case of the world. Artificial intelligence potentially gives us artificial minds. We're gradually constructing systems, artificially, made of silicon, not of biology, but that seem to have many of the capacities of human minds. That raises the question, are artificial minds genuine minds? And in this book, I try to argue that the answer is yes. In principle, artificial minds can be genuine minds. And I'll get back to that in a second. Likewise, where worlds are concerned, we really have one world here to deal with, the original, natural, physical world. But what virtual reality technology brings us is the possibility of artificial worlds, worlds that we create using computer technology. And one can raise a similar question about virtual worlds, about artificial worlds. Are these artificial worlds genuine worlds? Is virtual reality genuine reality? And as in the case of the mind in this book, I want to argue that, yeah, the answer is yes. Virtual reality is, in principle, a kind of genuine reality. But let me start with the, the case of the mind and AI and move on to the case of reality and VR. 
And the mind is where I got started in philosophy. My specialty is being a philosopher of the mind. And what drew me into this field from a very young age was the problem of consciousness. I started out studying mathematics, physics, and computer science, and the problems there always seemed deep and interesting. But I would also think it would have been wonderful to have been a, uh, say, a physicist, a physicist three or four hundred years ago in the 17th century, the time of Newton, when physics, say, the nature of space and time was utterly ill-understood, and to grapple with truly fundamental but truly mysterious questions. There are still many difficult questions in physics and mathematics, but there's a sense that we now at least have gotten the foundations. And I would think, where, what are the problems which right now, what are the aspects of reality that we truly don't understand? And for me, it always came back to the question of consciousness. Consciousness is in a way the most familiar thing in the world. We all have subjective experience. It's like this multi-track movie in our minds. It's got visual experience, experience of seeing the world around me. It's got auditory experience, as when we were hearing that marvelous guitar music a few minutes ago. It's got bodily experience, the experience of one's body. It's got emotional experience, feelings of joy or anger or sadness. It's got cognitive experience, the experience of, of thinking or reasoning, of following a chain of thought. These are all subjectively experienced from the inside as part of our inner movie. These are all part of the stream of consciousness. And the question is, how does consciousness fit in to a physical world. What I've called the hard problem of consciousness is yeah, how do physical processes in the brain, in the environment, give rise to conscious experience? Why doesn't all this go on in the dark somehow without consciousness? Why aren't we what some philosophers have called zombies, creatures that act and interact and behave in very impressive ways but with no subjective experience. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. In a way, no one really knows the answers to those questions now. There has developed in recent decades a very robust science of consciousness, which is actually very active. I helped to found the Association for Scientific Study of Consciousness back in the 1990s, and it's having its 26th meeting in New York next month. The neuroscience, psychology, and philosophy of consciousness has become very robust, but still it's at the level of finding correlations, say correlations between processes in the brain and aspects of consciousness. Why is it that processing in the brain should actually give you subjective experience at all? No one really knows the answer to that question. There are many, there are many speculations about this. I gather that next week you have the philosopher Philip Goff visiting Stockholm, who's argued for panpsychism the thesis that there's somewhere consciousness everywhere in nature. There are others who hold consciousness is an illusion. But right now, we don't have a solution to the hard problem. What we're finding, though, right now is one place where this problem is becoming very practical is the question of artificial intelligence, or AI. Because in recent years, AI has exploded. I did my own PhD thesis in an artificial intelligence lab. I worked with, with Douglas Hofstadter, the author of Gödel Escherbach, and many other books, who's also worked closely with Christer. But back, back 30 years ago, human-level artificial intelligence seemed very far off. I thought, you know, perhaps a century away. And if you'd asked me even 10 years ago, actually 2010, I wrote an article on AI where I said, what are the chances we'll get to human-level intelligence anytime soon? I said, 50% chance we'll get to human-level AI within the 21st century. But since 2010, all that has changed. Starting about 2012, there's been this massive resurgence of work on, on neural networks getting larger and larger, more and more computational power, more and more data. 
has led to so many advances, whether it's through, say, playing Go or discovering new scientific structures like protein structures or recognizing objects visually and in recognizing speech. And most recently, over the last, say, four or five years, large language models such as ChatGPT have really transformed artificial intelligence by showing signs of general intelligence. Uh, these models seem to be capable at, at very many things, initially developed for the study of language, for trying to get certain properties of syntax and semantics. These systems, which are just trained to predict the next word in a sequence of text, have developed very surprisingly all kinds of cognitive capacities that look like capacities for reasoning and carry on a conversation. They can write poems or stories. They can reason about mathematics or about science. They can play games. They can code. They've developed all sorts of capacities, and it doesn't seem to be stopping anytime soon. Every year, every, every month, every week, there's new advances announced in this area. And this really has started to make this question very practical. Are these, these AI systems conscious? Or may they be anytime soon? Last year, famously, the Google engineer, Blake Lemoyne, said that he detected consciousness or sentience in one of the, the Google language models, Lambda 2. And he argued that it was, in fact, conscious and it deserved rights and so on. Google immediately said, ah, there's no evidence that it's conscious, lots of evidence that it's not, and before long, he was fired. But I think this it actually does raise a philosophical question. Is this system conscious? And actually, since, since then, we've had the release of one new system after another, most recently GPT-4, which is that much more impressive than the systems that came before it, with all these capacities. And the question has suddenly become a real question. Is this system conscious? In, in, in this book, I argue that at least in principle, an AI system can be conscious. Actually, the case I concentrate on the most in the book is not a large language model. It's the case of a simulation of the brain. Just say we simulated our, our brains perfectly, neuron by neuron, would that system, so that we had a system that behaved just like a human being, would it in fact be conscious? I've argued that a system like that could be conscious. If you, for example, uploaded your brain, replacing your neurons one at a time by silicon chips, as you know, there are, there are movies and TV shows where, where this happened, happens, most recently one called Upload that, that illustrates this process. I would argue that if you replaced our neurons one at a time, say by silicon chips, if you're conscious at the beginning and the simulation is good enough, you'll have consciousness at the end. The all silicon system at the end would, could behave just like a human being and would, in fact, be conscious. That's to say, I've argued there's nothing special about biology when it comes to consciousness. Silicon, if biological neurons can do the job, so can silicon chips. What matters when it comes to consciousness is the information, is the computation. The whole question about large language models takes this even further. I think current large language models have some serious limitations 
when it comes to consciousness. Of course, they're not yet at the level of full-scale, human-level intelligence. On the other hand, most people think mice are conscious. Most people think mice have subjective experience, even though they don't have full-scale, human-level intelligence. I mean, the current pure language models, they lack sensory processing. So, arguably, so it seems likely they don't have visual experience, say, of the kind that we have. On the other hand, there are now multimodal models that process images as well as text. They may go beyond it. Current models, they largely involve feed-forward processing without much in the way of memory. That may be a limitation when it comes to consciousness. There are questions as to whether these models really have robust world models. So I guess I'd say that right now I'm not confident that if you asked me to bet, I would bet, okay, it's probably unlikely that current large language models are conscious. But the way things are going, AI is moving so fast, I think it's quite possible that within 10 years, we may well have systems which are conscious and which begin to approach human-level intelligence. And that will raise all kinds of philosophical, ethical, political questions. Once we have AI systems which are conscious at the level of a human being with human-level intelligence and so on, do they, start to get, do they start to get rights? Do they have moral value? Would it be okay just to treat... Right now, we can treat our AI systems as tools because we don't think they're conscious. We don't think they're awake or sentient. They're merely computer programs. They're merely tools. Once they're conscious, I think all that changes. In the book, I argue that once you have AI systems with, with consciousness is when you enter the circle of moral status. And that circle has been gradually expanding for many years. First of all, it was just maybe uh, ourselves, our family, our tribes, maybe our country. Eventually, the moral circle expanded to include all of humanity, then it expanded beyond to include animals. Most people think non-human animals have at least some claim not to suffer gratuitously, and so on. AI is potentially the next step in that, in that pathway. So I think very soon we're going to have to grapple with questions about morality that these AI systems raise. So yeah, once you accept that artificial minds can be genuine minds, then I think a whole lot begins, begins to change. So a lot is going to turn on these philosophical questions about consciousness and about the mind. Let me turn now to questions about the world and about reality. Here, the relevant technology is the technology of virtual reality, another technology which has been advancing fast in the last few years. I don't know how many of you have used a virtual reality headset, the, the MetaQuest headset, formerly known as the Oculus Quest, is perhaps the most well-known right now. You put on this, this headset and you experience a virtual world all around you. Uh, Apple is said to be announcing a product. Actually, I think maybe just two or three weeks from now, scheduled for June 5th, is a speech that's said to be launching their own virtual reality headset, perhaps with elements of, of what people call augmented reality, too, where you're in touch with physical reality and in touch with a digital, immersive 
virtual reality. So this technology is, uh, is moving fast, and it raises so many philosophical questions. So, as, so the main thesis of this book is that virtual reality is genuine reality, where a virtual reality is a computer-generated reality. Actually, a virtual world, which is, I guess, the title of the Swedish version of this book, a virtual world is a computer-generated version which is interactive. When you play a standard video game on a two-dimensional screen, you're already typically interacting with a virtual world. It's computer-generated, interactive. Once, you put up, once this goes into a virtual reality headset, you experience this world immersively in three dimensions all around you. Then that's full-scale virtual reality. And it raises so many philosophical questions. One question is, could our own world be a virtual reality? Once you raise the possibility of this technology in which one is immersed, then the question gets raised, could a virtual reality be indistinguishable from physical reality? We're not, that, we're not there yet with the technology, current virtual reality. It's fairly primitive and cartoonish in various ways, but it's getting better all the time. Probably within decades, we'll have VR, which is indistinguishable from physical reality. At that point, it begins to ask, and the question becomes natural, could it be that we're actually in a virtual reality already? We'll be able to put people into VR headsets, which are indistinguishable from, uh, from physical reality. Then, well, then the question just becomes very natural. Could that be happening to us? Could this be happening to you right now? You might say it's rather telling that you, have, you happen to be in a, going to a talk on the topic of virtual worlds. Is this something which the simulators just chose to, to, uh, to entertain you? entertain you tonight. Um, this is the simulation hypothesis, made famous by the Swedish philosopher Nick Bostrom, who actually argued that we should take seriously the thesis that we're in some kind of giant computer simulation. After all, the as the technology gets better and better, simulations will become increasingly hard to distinguish from physical reality. Furthermore, it's quite likely that many such simulations may be created in the history of the cosmos. You start to ask, what are the odds that I'm one of the lucky ones who's one of the ones at level zero, unsimulated, when there are so many more simulated beings? Especially if you hold that beings, that a simulated brain could actually support consciousness, then you begin to ask, then you ask naturally, if there were to be a giant simulation of physical reality, I would have a simulated brain which could support consciousness just like that of an unsimulated brain, and you start to wonder, could this be happening to me? I don't say we are in a simulation. I'm not sure, but I do think it's a serious possibility, one that I talk about a lot in this book. And one of the things that's interesting about this hypothesis for a philosopher is it's a way of raising many of the great questions about how we can know about reality, how we can know about the external world. Back in the 1640s, René Descartes argued in his meditations on first philosophy. He said, he raised the question, how can you know you're not being fooled by an evil demon into thinking there's this reality out there when none of it is real? The modern version of that question is the question, how do you know you're not in a simulation? Most famously illustrated in the movie, The Matrix. 
How do you know you're not in the matrix right now? And once you've got this, this actual simulation technology existing around us, this is no longer science fiction. This become, well, it's no longer way out science fiction. It becomes near-term science fact, or science possibility, at least. We can raise the question, yeah, could this be happening to us? Descartes, and many people say, that if we are in a simulation, then nothing is real, everything is an illusion. This is where I want to depart, actually, from the philosophical tradition. It's where I think the philosophical tradition has got some things wrong. The philosophical tradition holds that virtual reality would be second-class reality. If we're in the matrix, nothing is real. I want to allow, yes, we could be in a simulation right now, it's possible, but if we're in a simulation, nevertheless, things are genuinely real. There are still, even if I'm in a simulation, it is telling that I can't actually see anybody out there right now. It might just be a, might just be a rather local simulation of me and this table and this bottle and book and smartphone and so on, just to keep the, just to keep the computational costs down, guys. Is that what's, what's going on right now? But I would argue that even if I'm in that kind of simulation, the table is still real, the bottle is still real, the book is still real, the glass is still real. If I'm in a simulation, these are digital objects with a level of computer processing lying underneath the bottle, the book, the glass. The glass is made of bits. It's a computer process. The water here is genuine water, but it turns out that water is digital. The water we've interacted with our whole life may turn out to be digital water. It's nonetheless real. It turns out that is if we're in a simulation, that is the nature of our reality. So I want to argue, if we're in a virtual reality, everything out there is still real, it's digital. There's a trend to regard, there was a trend in the past of thinking that if something is digital, it's not real. There's that famous phrase, IRL, in real life, where it's assumed that if something is digital, it's not real life. One's digital life is not one's real life. One's real life is one's non-digital life. Maybe back in the 1990s when this phrase was coined, that rang true, that digital life was not real life. I want to argue, though, that now, certainly I think in the age of totally ubiquitous internet, social media, cryptocurrency, virtual reality, AI, so much of our real lives is digital life. Digital life digital objects are just as real as non-digital objects. So I would argue, so certainly if we're in a simulation, nonetheless, things are real. This, okay, the simulation idea may seem a bit science fiction-y to you and way out, but I think all of these morals also apply to real virtual reality, the kind of virtual reality that now you can experience in a headset such as the uh, the meta quest or the augmented reality to come. Many people feel that when you, when you live, when you interact in a virtual world, somehow it's an illusion, it's not real. I want to argue that the objects you experience inside, inside VR are perfectly real. When you play a game like Beat Saber, where you slice digital cubes with your digital lightsaber, you're interacting with real digital objects. They're genuine reality. 
They're merely digital reality. Now, digital reality is different from physical reality. Don't get me wrong. The digital is different from the non-digital, but they're still both real. Digital processes make a difference in the world. So we should regard, in my view, we should regard the realities we're creating with virtual reality technologies as genuine realities, albeit digital realities. And in the book, I try and argue for this, for this thesis in some depth. I argue that inside the virtual world, the ontology of these virtual worlds is of objects made of bits, analogous to what's sometimes called the it-from-bit hypothesis in modern physics. That, yeah, virtual objects are made of bits, they're digital objects, but they're no less real for that. This also, I think, has practical consequences. We are eventually, right now, virtual worlds, for many people, probably for most people, are entertainment. Some people spend a lot of time in video game worlds, and some people indeed spend a lot of time in social virtual worlds. Say, the world of Second Life has had an enormous number of people over the years. There are VR worlds, like VR chat, where people spend a lot of time. And the question raises, arises, can you actually have meaningful experiences in a virtual world? Can you, in, in principle, lead a valuable life in a virtual world? Or is it doomed just to be escapism? My own thesis is, in principle, you can lead a meaningful life in a virtual world. Already people have found this, I think, in virtual worlds like Second Life, where people have built communities, People build relationships, some people work there, some people find entertainment there. I recently watched a documentary called We Got Married in Virtual Reality about a couple who met actually in, in VR and eventually got married out there in the, uh, the non-virtual world. I would argue that as conscious beings, we can find meaning, find meaning everywhere. The meaning in our world is the meaning we create with our consciousness and we can bring meaning to virtual worlds just as we do to, to non-virtual worlds. So in the future, as virtual worlds become more and more ubiquitous in our lives, they're going to be a place where we can actually find meaning. Now, this is not to say that virtual worlds are going to be, uh, to be wonderful. I suspect virtual reality will be like the internet. Has the internet been wonderful? No. Has it been awful? No, it's been both. It's been both wonderful and it's been awful. There have been wonderful things brought about by the internet and there have been awful things brought about by the internet. I think the same is true for virtual reality. The fact that it's meaningful just raises the stakes. It means the good things will really be good, the bad things will really be bad. It brings, on the positive side of the ledger, Virtual worlds bring, I think, the possibility of new forms of embodiment, new forms of experience. Already, for example, disabled people or aged people have had new forms of access to reality, to communities inside virtual worlds that they haven't had without, they haven't had in the physical world. I think there's the possibility, perhaps, of new forms of material equality and social justice inside virtual worlds as people experiment with new political systems. But there are also very obvious dangers and downsides from virtual worlds. Right now, most virtual worlds are ultimately controlled by corporations like Meta, like Google, 
and so on. And that seems likely to continue in the foreseeable future. There's a way in which the creators of a virtual world are like the gods of that world. They created the world. They've got enormous power over that world. So you know, do we want to live in a future where these corporations are our gods? It's already beginning to happen. But the possibility of corporations controlling the very reality in which we live our lives is a very concerning one. I, mean, I think we have to worry about issues about, if you think issues like privacy and manipulation are a big deal with existing social media, they're likely to be an even bigger deal in, in VR. So I think there are enorm there's enormous potential and enormous upsides from virtual worlds, also enormous potential dangers and downsides from virtual worlds. Exactly the same is true for the technology of artificial intelligence. You can see through AI the possibility of technology that maybe super intelligent AI could have the capacity to solve the problems of climate change, to cure all known diseases, to figure out how we can have a stable and just society. But at the same time, yeah, super intelligent AI, can, it already shows, AI shows so many biases. Will it really, will people have equal access to AI, it's already got all kinds of, you know, potential. AI will have so much power in the hands of corporations, so much potential for harm. There's, in the extreme case, there's the possibility that AI systems could actually take over, and if not properly controlled, could lead to what people call existential risks, the death of humanity. So I'd say that the stakes here are very high, both for AI and virtual reality. The fact that artificial minds may be genuine minds, the fact that virtual worlds may be genuine worlds just raise the stakes here. They're fascinating philosophically, but these are cases where the philosophical problems may also have great practical import. In the long run, we're going to have to figure out many questions about consciousness, about the nature of reality, about how to live a meaningful life, about how to set up a stable and just society in order to make sense of life in a world with these technologies. I hope that at the same time, working with these technologies is going to help us shed light on these very broad philosophical questions, which are also of the greatest practical import. So the way I, I summarize all this in a slogan is, yeah, artificial minds are genuine minds. Virtual reality is genuine reality. The rest is up to us. Thank you. Thank you, David. Extremely interesting. Please sit down, actually, there, because now I'm going to invite two more guests up on stage to discuss. I've asked two other thinkers and researchers to join us to discuss David's presentation here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intelligence Squad podcast. Part two of this event will be available as our next episode. Subscribers can access both episodes now.